just spend less time Googling foods and more time having sex and like, <laughs> you'll be a lot happier. <laughs> Hey guys, welcome to episode 19 of the Science Centric Podcast. I hope you're all staying safe and sane during these uncertain times. I think we're all suffering from a little bit of pandemic fatigue and uh, wish we could just get on with our lives, right? In this episode, we're departing the upside down world of COVID-19 and jumping back into the world we knew only a few months ago. And hopefully it's one we'll know again soon. It's a world where we worry mostly about like long-term issues, how the food we're putting in our mouth affects our health, and how nutrition can add or subtract years from our lives. Our guest in this episode, George Zaydan, knows these topics well. George is the executive producer for the American Chemical Society and a former co-host of CNBC's Make Me a Millionaire Inventor. Most recently, he authored the book Ingredients, the strange chemistry of what we put in us and on us. As the title suggests, ingredients is about the chemistry of the food we eat and the products we use, but it's actually much more than that. It's a crash course in two long words that start with the letter E, epidemiology and epistemology. Epidemiology tells us if something is good or bad for us, and epistemology looks at how we know what we think we know. Those topics may sound a little dry, but George has packed this book with his own brand of humor that will literally have you laughing from cover to cover. George and I spoke about understanding risk in both long-term and short-term scenarios, whether eating more processed foods really shortens our lifespans, and how a self-professed chemistry nerd ended up in the quagmire of nutritional epidemiology. But before we dive in, a quick reminder that we need your support to keep this podcast going. If you find value in interviews with leading scientists, journalists, and authors, consider becoming a member on Patreon. For a small monthly fee, members get benefits like early access to new episodes and their names mentioned in the show credits. Head over to sciencecentric.com support for more info. Other ways you can help out are telling a friend about us or writing a review on iTunes. Okay, enough of that. Let's get into it. George, welcome to the Science Center. If I can even say the name of the podcast correctly. George, welcome to the Science Centric Podcast. Uh, So glad to have you here. Um, And, uh, you know, we're under some pretty uh, extraordinary circumstances. And um, it's great that that we can talk and not be transmitting viruses back and forth. Although pretty soon the CDC is going to come out and say you should put a mask over your, your screen. Just kidding. Just kidding. Just a joke. Uh, no, seriously. Thanks. It's it's great. It's great to be here. Yes. Um, yes. And 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 maybe we shouldn't be laughing about you know the the seriousness of of the situation. But but you got but you got it right. Yeah, I've got I've got ten masks downstairs. I'm, I'm I'm taking this as seriously as it as it needs to be taken, which is very seriously. Yeah. Yeah. Same here. Same here. Yeah. Um, and we're both in, you know, you're in DC. I'm in New York. These are really populous areas, densely populated areas. So like, like we can't avoid people pretty much. No. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, you've got it worse than I do. Yes, definitely. Yeah. yeah. yeah New, York's, New York's really hard hit. Yeah. And you know, it's uh, when I travel to other cities, smaller cities, like I'm from Seattle, I always think where'd everybody go? You know? And, and, <laughs> 
and that's what Brooklyn is like now. But for a lot of cities, that's normal, you know. So yeah. like, you know, we're we're getting a certain level of exposure here that's probably just normal for 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 smaller cities. Yeah. Um. So, uh, you're here to talk about your book Ingredients. Yeah. Um. Which I loved reading. Um. But. One thing I just wanted to touch on was that that your this book, um, I feel it's a little bit deceptively titled because it's it's about ingredients, but really it's about epidemiology, yeah, nutritional epidemiology in particular. Yeah. But I was I was um, to to kind of bring it back to to what we were just talking about current events, um, the you know. Uh, this whole thing with coronavirus is really epidemiology and, and about dealing with risk and probability of exposure and all this stuff. And there seems to be some kind of debate about, is this really deadly? Is this really a big risk? You know, is it worse than flu? Is this lockdown necessary? I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? Having sort of dug into to epidemiology? I mean, I yeah. know you you didn't, look at infectious disease in particular, but do you have any thoughts about it? Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting. Um, I wrote, so I wrote the book uh, months before any of the, the COVID-19 stuff started happening and really hit the US. But um, it, it's actually, like writing the book was actually the best training that I could have had for trying to deal with, with the current situation for a couple different reasons. The first is that like, I mean, right now, the headlines are changing every five minutes. Um, sometimes they're contradictory. Sometimes like, as we've seen with the CDC, right? Like a month ago they were saying, don't wear a mask unless you're sick or a healthcare worker or anything like that. And now they're saying, you know, if you go outside, it's a good idea to put on a mask, even if it's a bandana, right? Like yeah. that is a dramatic change. And so trying to understand things like, well, why did they, why did they change their guidelines like that? And trying to deal with all the headlines coming at you, um, you know, diving into nutritional epidemiology and also health news was uh, really good training for that. Um, yeah. I think you, I think you said the the news cycle in, in that area is something like 22 days. Like there, there'll be a, a news headline out saying coffee can kill you. And then 22 days later, it'll be like coffee prevents heart attacks, you know? So, <laughs> yes, uh, that was, that was one of the most surprising things that I, I mean, I had always heard and probably you had too, that like, you know, um, oh, like one day, one day coffee will kill you and the next day it's totally fine for you. And then the day after that, it's like actually good for you. And so how are we supposed to know what to trust? And I had always thought that was kind of an exaggeration. But when I, when I actually went and looked at, I went into LexisNexis and looked at headlines uh, that contained the words coffee risk and increase or decrease over a period of, I think, uh, 20 years or something like that. And sometimes the headlines literally were coming out within 22 days of each other. I mean, mm -hmm. opposite headlines in the same month, which, you know, if you're a consumer trying to read that, like, what, what the hell are you supposed to make of that? It's insane. <laughs> um, so, uh, so yeah, and, and, you know, today, these days, the headlines are, it's not every 22 days, it's every day, right? Like, right. So it's even crazier and even more fast paced than, than the, the headlines about food. <laughs> So my my take on on this when, when things are so erratic is I kind of tend to gravitate to the most conservative position. Like 
um, in terms of, of, or I should say the most cautious position yeah. because yeah. when it's changing this fast, I'm like, okay, uh, you know, they could come out tomorrow and say, well, oh, it's mutating and, you know, it's 10 times worse than we thought. Or, I mean, that's probably not going to happen. We know enough now, but um, I just tend to, I tend to take the most cautious position. I mean, do you think that that's prudent? I mean, it's a little bit different than nutritional epidemiology because, you know, you have to weigh the, the trade-off there. And, and obviously we have a huge economic trade-off here with... Totally. Yeah, I mean, I think like the the main difference between between something like COVID nineteen and nutritional epidemiology is nutritional epidemiology is really focused on uh, mostly focused on chronic diseases, so mm-hmm. heart disease, right? Those are and you know those are the two main killers in the, in the United States today, um, and they're extremely important diseases, and we should focus on them, and we should spend a lot of energy and time studying them, and I don't think anyone disagrees about that, mm-hmm. uh, but the the trouble with those diseases is it's actually really it's it's very difficult to uh, study to to figure out what causes a disease that takes years to develop and sometimes will develop in people who don't do the thing you're studying. So let's say you want to check and see if like eating a lot of Cheetos gives you heart disease. You know, there's plenty of people who get heart attacks who's never eaten a Cheeto in their entire lives. You know what? And so so it, it, it's much more complicated to deconvolute, the, deconvolute those two things yeah. versus a, a, a disease like like COVID-19. It like clearly happens because of SARS-CoV-2. There's no question there. It happens relatively quickly compared to a chronic disease like heart disease or cancer. It, you know, you if you're exposed to the virus and you end up with the illness, the incubation period is what, like five to 14 days, somewhere in that range. Yeah. Um, and... <clears throat> And, you know, and it's like this, there's no, I mean, there is a question of like, if you come down with it, you know, there's a, that period in the beginning where you're like, is this, a, am I just, do I have a cold or do I have COVID-19? Do I have the flu or do I have COVID-19? There's that, but there's a test for it. Like yeah. you go get tested and then you have an answer. You're like, okay, yes, I have this virus and I have this disease and you know, and it's fast and it's dramatic. And when you're cured from it, hopefully you are right yeah that's also reasonably fast and dramatic too whereas you know compare that with a cancer cure you you know you first of all like you may not be cured right and then if you are you're measuring like how long has it been how like how long have i been cancer free right that's a very different thing than i got covid19 and i recovered mm-hmm. um so and then plus we have you know we have at this point, over a hundred years, I think, in terms of understanding how viruses work and how like we get these infectious diseases, and even even if we didn't understand like what was causing the infectious disease, we knew how it get like we know how it gets from one person to the other. Like there's a clear link there in terms of you cough, you you know you get on your hands, you shake someone's hand, they put pick their nose, and then boom, right? Like, <laughs> um, yeah. So like the science is much better understood. So, you know, those are some of the differences. And that's part of the reason that like when when we started hearing more and more about SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19, I was like, oh, man, this is serious yeah. compared to, like, you know, uh, it's not really a big deal if you eat that extra bag yeah. of Cheeto. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I, and I also think that that if it ends up being as just as deadly as flu, 
you know, in that ballpark. Well, then essentially we're dealing with like two flu seasons at the same time, which is right. which is problematic because our health care system is met is set up to deal with one flu epidemic at a time, not multiple ones. Right. <laughs> so it's like, yes, you know, and I think that that's that's the, the major concern there. But yeah. um, did you by the way, did you um, you know, the part in the book where I talk about the debate between Ioannidis and Walt Willett? Uh huh. Um, I don't know if you saw, but he, Ioannidis actually published an article in Stat News in which he basically said, like, he didn't say, like, calm down about COVID-19, but he said something along the lines of, like, your absolute risk is very, very small to, to get COVID-19. Uh-huh. And, like, when he published that, and still today, that is a relatively true statement, right? Like, let's say you live in um, a really rural area, not densely populated your absolute risk of getting this disease might be really low. Your risk of dying in a car crash might be a little higher, right? But the problem with epidemics is that the risk doesn't stay constant. Your risk of dying in a car crash this year is the same as your risk of dying in a car crash last year. Mm. Your risk of dying of COVID-19 this year is astronomically higher than it was last year. <laughs> last year was zero. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> you know? Right, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and there's I I think at last count there were like 21 Brooklyn school teachers, uh, New York school teachers that had died of of COVID, and it's like their risk of dying of an infection this year before COVID was zero, and like this year it's not zero, and so that that is that is significant, you know. Yeah. It depends it depends on so many variables, um, but I think that maybe you could you could tie you could tie the problem with these together, which is that there are so many variables. And then when you're dealing with humans, we we can't we can't. It's really hard to do that you know that gold standard case control study because we can't put like one you know one group that's uninfected um, and another group that's uninfected and like infect them and kind of see what happens. I mean, it's all it's all kind of retrospective, right? Right. It's. Yeah, the kind of studies that you want to do when it comes to, um, you know, trying to figure out like, okay, d does processed food cause cancer in, in a very unethical but scientifically ideal world, right? You would split people up, you do a randomized control trial, you give one people a bunch of ultra processed food, you restrict this group from getting that same ultra processed food, and then you follow them for 30 years and see who gets cancer and who doesn't. Obviously, that's wildly unethical, right? You you can't you can't yeah, do that. Right. Um, so you have to rely on these exactly what you said, like these uh, people. Some people would call them less less robust methods, and and I would agree with those folks. But you know, there's debate on that. Um, but you know, you have to instead you have to you can't force people to eat or not eat a certain thing. Yeah. You have to just let them do what they're going to do, and and ask them every year, like. Hey, what'd you eat this year? What'd you eat this year? What'd you eat this year? What about this year? And you do that 30 times. And then at the end of it, you see like, okay, this group got a bunch of cancer and this group didn't get a bunch of cancer. And it, it doesn't give you causality, right? It, it's like, yeah. this is to the point. Like it doesn't tell you this caused cancer. All it tells you is this is associated or this is correlated. Yeah. With cancer. Yeah. So, so let's, let's jump off the COVID thing because I think, I think as you said, that the, the there is there are some parallels in in terms of how the news media coverage covers it um, that and, and nutritional epidemiology, but there is a difference in that um, there are a lot of differences in, in talking about this. So let's jump off that for a minute and um, 
let's talk about sort of the central uh, question of your book, which I believe is, are processed foods bad for you? And I think there's, um, I would say yes. And (laughs) I think there's, that's the zeitgeist. I mean, that that processed, you know, um, I mean, there's a whole chain of grocery stores called Whole Foods, which has (laughs) been very successful, which is the opposite of processed foods, right? right? So, um, so how did you, how did you come up with that question? What, what, what sort of triggered this um, question to, to then explore that issue through this book? Yeah. So um, about five years ago, I did a show for National Geographic called, it was also called Ingredients. And in the show, I, I, the point was to try and make consumer products out of, like my ideal version of the show was I would wander into a forest, pluck some stuff from the ground, and then like take it back into my kitchen and make lipstick or something like that didn't like didn't quite end up working out that way but i tried to make consumer products from from ingredients that were more natural um and i kept like i kept running up against this problem of well like what like what can i reasonably make consumer products out of that is also quote unquote more natural and what does this more natural mean like if I wanted to make lipstick, for example, it turns out you can make like pretty good lipstick out of a few different types of oils and rust. But you know, do is it okay for me to order rust on Amazon? Like, is that like processed, or do I need to like get a hunk of metal and throw it in my yard and like leave it for three years and then like scrape off the rust? Right? Like, like, and that's the same debate you that you have with your with yourself when you walk into a Whole Foods. It's like, well, do I buy the packaged cookies or do I like buy the the flour and the eggs and the butter and then make them at home? Yeah. Um, and is there a di- and so you know the question in my mind is like, well, is that different health wise? Right? Is it better for you to uh, buy the quote unquote whole foods and like prep them in your kitchen and you know stay away from all the boxed and packaged stuff? Is that actually better for your health over a long period of time? And I thought that I was going to be writing a book in which I did exactly what you just did, which is, yeah, obviously they're bad for you, and here's why. Let me give you the like super long reason and explanation as to why they're bad for you. Uh, and it turned out that that was not the book I ended up writing. It was, uh, it was re- like, it just, um, shit got real weird real fast. Let me put it that way. <laughs> um, and... You know, there's you. You mentioned earlier a researcher named uh, Ionides. How do you say? It? Y- uh, it's 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 pronounced uh, Y. I think Y O like Ioannidis. Ioannidis. Yeah. And then there's this other researcher, Willet. Yeah. And they sort of fall into these two camps on this, right? And so, what are these? What are these camps? How would you characterize them? So um, I'll start with Walt Willet, who's yeah. at Harvard. Um, he, so he, he and his camp, and by the way, these are not necessarily like the leaders of these camps. They mm-hmm. just are prominent researchers in these camps. But, um, is this uh, kind of a Tesla Edison sort of scenario where they're, <laughs> where they're sort of competing with each other? Or is this, was, is this sort of a literary device uh, of, of yours that? No, they actually of... write articles back and forth in journals to each other like arguing with each other about the science. Okay. So okay. it's kind of like a, it's kind of like a, uh, West side story kind of thing. 
um, so so Walt Willits at Harvard, and he and and that sort of whole group of folks, um, uh, he and Gladys Block, um, uh, according to some other people I talked to, basically invented nutritional epidemiology. And so what they started doing was sending out. Um, questionnaires to, to, it's like what I described earlier. It's like Mm -hmm. you ask people every year, you know, what have you eaten this year roughly? And you do it over a long, 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 long period of time. And then you crunch the numbers in ways that are fairly complicated. And at the end of it all, you come out with a correlation or association. And, and you'll read that in the headlines. You'll see something like, you know, um, eggs associated with 27% increase of heart disease risk, something like that. Yeah. And that the, the camp of researchers who who do those trials um, or those studies, I, I should say, they're not trials. Um, they believe, like, they're aware of some flaws with their method, right? But they believe that by and large, it's a reliable method. It's going to produce truth more often than not, um, and it is it, it is something that's useful to do because, like, you can't do a randomized controlled trial, right? You can't do a thirty-year-long randomized controlled trial. Yeah. Um, so that's that's the one camp. The other camp, which in which Yoannidis falls and, and some other folks, um, they basically say like, uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think of like a nice way to say this. <laughs> um, they basically say like, your methods and data are so flawed that we can't draw any reliable conclusions from this data, right? Okay. Their is like. You know, um, the 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 ex- the magnitude of the risks that you are communicating to the scientific community are so low as to be within the range of like noisy data, right? Okay, right. So both groups would point to, and I talk about this in the book, the example of smoking. Um, Smoking is an area where you cannot do a randomized controlled trial, right? You can't like assign people to smoke and then people to not smoke. It would be very unethical. So you're limited to doing these long-term observational trials. Um, and uh, in the case of smoking, though, it's not the, – the final result wasn't like, okay, smoking increases your risk of lung cancer by like 20%. Mm-hmm. Smoking increases your risk of lung cancer by 1,100%. So mm-hmm. like – it multiplies your risk by 11, which, I mean, and, and depending on how much you smoke, it can be higher than that. Um, and that's so, your risk of can- getting cancer? Lung cancer. Yeah, lung cancer. Okay, yeah. It, it multiplies your overall risk of death from any cause by roughly 2.5 to 3. So it, it almost triples your, your risk of death. Okay. And what that means is, you know, people who smoke on average live 10 years less 10 years shorter lives than people who don't smoke and lung cancer sorry lung cancer has a really uh, you said in the book a really low survival rate so if you yeah. get lung cancer it's like it's pretty much it's not it's, it's definitely not, not a yeah. cancer you want if, if you yeah. like wishing for the type of cancer you'd get lung cancer would be low on the list yeah, yeah, yeah. um so you know so both, both of these groups will point to smoking and say well look observational trials work but but the you know and, and and in smoking it did work because like when something multiplies your risk of getting a, a disease by 11 times you can be fairly sure that's not noise right like yeah. assuming you do all the math right and you you know there's no like major flaw in your design right yeah 11 and an, an 11 fold increase in risk is enormous yeah uh, compared to a 
a 27% increase in risk, which, you know, is a point like 0.27 versus mm-hmm. 11, right? Big difference there. Yeah. So that's, that's the kind of Ioannidis argument. It's like, look, you're giving yeah. us these risks and it's, it's not like, yeah, okay, maybe it does increase your risk by 27%, but like, I mean, that's not that big a deal. Right. So this is, this is the idea of absolute risk versus relative risk, right? Right. So absolute risk is like, you know, if you do this behavior, it will increase your risk by this much versus if you hadn't done this behavior or eaten this or smoke this. And the relative risk is like, well, that's compared to doing something else. Right. So, so so it's close. Yeah. So the absolute, like your absolute risk is, let's say, um, uh, let's pick a random example, like, uh, let's pick heart disease. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I think, I don't know exactly the numbers, but I think your absolute risk of at any point in your life um, having heart disease is roughly 25% in that general ballpark, right? Mm -hmm. Um, If you, now, if you start restricting that to like under 50 year olds, you can imagine the risk would go a lot, would be a lot lower, right? you know, my absolute risk right now of having a heart attack in the next year is probably way less than 1%. Mm-hmm. But if you grow up someone's whole lifespan, you know, you're going to die of something, right? It's yeah. probably heart disease or cancer if you live in the U.S. And so your, your absolute risk of having, a heart, of having a heart condition at some point in your life is roughly 25%. Now, let's say you take a drug and uh, that drug magically cuts the risk of having a heart a heart condition throughout your entire life in half, okay? So that that thing that I just said, the in half, that's the relative risk. If it halves your risk, that's that's amazing. I mean, that's for heart attacks, that's incredible. That would be that would be a real miracle, right? Uh-huh. Um but what it what it's doing is it's taking your your absolute risk from 25% to 12.5%. Right. Right. So usually relative risks sound a lot more impressive than absolute risks. Uh huh. Yeah. Because and 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 for you know I don't know why, but traditionally the relative risk is what's reported in the literature, right? So when you read a headline that involves a risk, it, most of the time it's going to be a relative risk. So this egg thing, right? It's like okay, eggs increase your risk of having a, a heart attack, let's say by by twenty seven percent. That if you if you did that for your whole life and you multiplied it by the absolute risk of having a heart attack, you would end, it would increase it by, you'd have to do math, but 1.27 multiplied by the absolute risk. Yeah. So, um, when you're talking about heart, heart disease, if you're starting with a baseline risk of 25% and you start moving it around with, with a relative risk, like that's actually still pretty substantial. Okay. Yeah. When you talk about something like lung cancer, um, which you're pretty unlikely to get if you don't smoke. Uh, that's when, like, you know, you're, if you, if, you know, if, let's say cigarettes increased your risk of lung cancer by 1%. They don't, but let's say they did. Mm-hmm. That really wouldn't be that big of a deal because your risk is so low to start with. Right. Right. So it, it's actually, I mean, you can, you can tie yourself in knots, but the key <laughs> thing to remember is the, the relative risk is, a useful piece of information if you also know the absolute risk. Uh-huh. Okay, that because makes sense. Yeah. You get the full picture of like what am I actually likely to get if I do or 
do this now. Right. So if you're if you're making you know small tweaks to your diet or exercise routine, and maybe there's a, a uh, you know these are these are little changes that aren't going to have a big impact overall on your health uh, and your and your longevity. Let's say. Yeah. I think CDC, uh, CDC has um, I, for for a project I did. I was looking up I, a lot of risk stuff, um, but CDC has like like four recommendations. It's like don't smoke, you know, um, don't get overweight, wear a seatbelt was another one. That's a huge one. Uh, That's a, a good people. Yeah, right. Um, and I can't remember. There was like one other one. Um, don't drink too much. It was yeah. like if you if you do those four things, like your 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 risk of of dying in this year is like way low, right? So, yeah, no, that's that's totally right. Like, you know, the if I, I the last I checked, I think thirty million Americans still smoke on a daily on a daily basis, or yeah. or sorry, have smoked in the past year. Um, and if if they instantaneously quit, that would be like the greatest health boon to the country. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, if you, if you do those, those four things, like you're doing those four things is way more important than like looking online to see whether like light roast or dark roast coffee is quote unquote better for your health. Right. Uh, like, uh-huh. yeah, my, <laughs> my rule of thumb is, um, uh, uh, how do I say this? It's like spend. It's like just spend less time googling foods and more time having sex, and like <laughs> you'll be a lot happier. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Um, so, <laughs> um, what was I gonna say? Oh, so you know, um, I think so. You you in the book you're talking a lot about processed foods, yeah. um, and and there is there was a study or. Um, is it one study? Uh, is it Wellette's study that showed that there was a fourteen percent increase in risk of death from eating? Um, it was. No, it was. It was a. It was a study in the same like same mode, same nutritional epidemiology mode. But no, it was published by a group in France, and uh, oh, Will, right. he wasn't a co-author. Yeah. Okay, but this shows that you know um, if you eat processed foods, whatever that means. That, that you're gonna is it 14 percent less lifespan uh, longevity no. or it's or you, yeah. you increase your risk of dying over a period of time what would it was that 14 percent? yeah and that's that's the that's the confusing part so the it, the the uh, the result of the study which is a little long and hard to parse is uh that a 10 percent increase in the proportion of ultra processed food in your diet is associated with a 14 percent increase in your risk of death from any cause okay so uh, you like you might look at that and think, well, does that mean that I'm going to live 14% less long? And the answer is no. It does not mean <laughs> that at all because that would be that would be huge, right? Like yeah. 14% of the average lifespan uh, lifespan is is like 11 or 12 years, some somewhere in that range. That that's a major difference, right? But it does not mean that. Um, what you have to do is you have to take that 14% and um, uh, uh, basically integrate it with what's called a life table, which is the CDC publishes these every year. You can go online and get one for yourself. It tells you the risk of dying at every age within that year. So from uh, any cause, from any cause. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And okay. you can, you can, you can like drill down and figure out what the risk is from specific causes, yeah. but the overall life table that they publish is from any cause whatsoever. Uh-huh. 
Um, and so you take that 14% and you, you basically do some math to like sprinkle it on the life table. And then you figure out from that, okay, what's the, what's the new life expectancy? And if you do that, you get that it's roughly a year less. So when you're looking at 14%, you're multiplying that 14% by this whatever this this life table number is that you have yes. for, for your by age the entire, and demographic. the entire table, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you're assuming when you do that, that like the moment you come out of the womb, you just dive headfirst into a bag of Cheetos and you keep eating Cheetos all the way through until the day you die, right? Like, and you can, you can, you know, you can, so, so that, that, that one year number that I gave you, that's like the worst case scenario in the sense that you would have to eat this 10% more processed, ultra processed food your entire life. Mm-hmm. You can, you know, you can put bounds on that and say, well, you're not likely to be eating a lot of Cheetos until you turn whatever, seven or eight or nine or mm-hmm. 15 or whatever it is. Um, <laughs> Uh, and that would that would reduce the impact on your your lifespan. But um, I do want to make a point. Like I want to be my own devil's advocate for a second and say, you know, when I saw that one year number, I was like, oh, like fourteen percent increase in risk sounds really terrifying, but it only translates into a year of life lost. Like, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, so it only translates into a year of life lost. Like, like that seems, I mean, what's the big deal basically of a year? Yeah. He agrees with you, by the way. What? The, that driver agrees with you. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> I He's a, like, yeah, beep, beep. I know. I have it in my window. It's like, honk if you think one year is that big of a deal. <laughs> um, so, but then I talked to a demographer and she said like, you know, for one person, what, maybe one year isn't that big of a deal. It also depends on how old you are, right? Like, if you're 33 or 34 and you're you, you're looking out to your expected lifespan of 76, 77. Was <laughs> laying on the horn there? Yeah, really. What is that? Um, yeah. Go know, on. No, I was yeah. gonna say it sounds like New York, but but. Yeah. <laughs> um, so if you you know if you're looking out 50 years in the future, maybe a year doesn't seem like that big of a deal to you. But if you're 72, maybe a year really is a big deal. And if mm-hmm. that year is being spent like with your grandkids, that's an important year. So, so you know whether a year or not is a big deal to you or not also depends on your philosophy. Mm-hmm. So it's not you know it's not so much for me to say like oh one year no big deal who cares. You also come into play there. You get to decide like. What is one year for me? Right. Yeah. It seems like a lot with a lot of health decisions, it really is about what it means to to you in particular um, in the context of how old you are and how much time you have left and all that, all that sort of stuff. I've heard that before. Yeah. Um, So this, this study, this French study though, this is, is this is a perspective study or a, that, that we're talking about and how long did they follow the people that were, involved in this i think they followed them for about seven or eight years okay uh, yeah so you know not 30 years but also not like three months yeah um, and it was a prospective study so everything in the I, in the book i don't even talk about the the case control or the retrospective studies or any of that stuff i, yeah. I focus basically exclusively on prospective studies and randomized controlled trials yeah yeah 
so yeah i mean i i the i you know and and you elucidate a lot of this in the book but there's so many issues with perspective studies so yeah. many pitfalls there's yeah. um you know self-report is never like 100 percent uh in any context people are terrible at remembering what they did or didn't do the other big thing is confounders uh confounding variables like does does eating Cheetos go along with other unhealthy behaviors like you know drinking too much, not exercising, all of those sorts of things? So you have to like weed all that stuff out. Smoking, yeah, yeah. So I mean, maybe that's more interesting is to look at like groups of behaviors um, and and seeing you know uh, imagine they would have like this sort of compound effect if you're doing all these right things and or versus all these wrong things and maybe it does have have an impact and and can shave you know many years off your life if you're doing the wrong things i mean what do you yeah. think about that yeah the the confounding problem is one that um like pretty much everyone agrees is a problem the only disagreement is how much of a problem is it um you know uh, the the people in the walter willett camp would say you know it, it is an issue and we have like mathematical tools to correct for it so, you know, we can put sort of bounds on the uncertainty involved and like we have a reasonable degree of certainty that, you know, we're in this range. And then you've got people in the Ioannidis camp who say things like, you know, it's basically impossible to control for confounders uh, in a study where you're, you're, the, the risk you're coming up with is like, you know, low, like 15%, 20%, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually talked with with a professor at Harvard who uh, is in the Veritas. I think he's in the Veritas Forum, which is the forum on religion and truth and stuff. Um, and he was saying, you know, we don't control like most confounding variables. We don't even try to control for. He was saying like um, religious service attendance is a is a confounding variable that is basically never controlled for in any epidemiological study. And it is his belief that it has a causal effect on you know things that matter that you want to study like your lifespan or whatever um basically his thinking is like if you are religious and you go to church a lot or or synagogue or the mosque or whatever um you know you are going to be that's going to have a positive causal positive impact on your health Mm -hmm. and you know whether that's true i i don't know who thinks it is right um but uh but but his point basically was like a, you're not even sure that you're capturing everything that you need to capture when you're controlling for confounding variables. And then B, the actual process of confounding or of controlling for those variables is tricky and involves a lot of decisions on your part, right? And I talked to another guy um, uh, out of, uh, he's in California, I forget exactly what university, but his point was, you know, every, every decision you make in a study Um, is a fork in the road, kind of like this parallel universe thing. And by the time you publish the study, you've made so many decisions Mm -hmm. and clear what they are. So like, did you exclude people who are younger than 20? Did you exclude people who are younger than 21, right? The the whole gamut. Um, That you can basically make your result be whatever you want it to be by modifying those decisions. Um, And that was a whole other fascinating thing. Like, you know, like, it's not just the data you're collecting. It's what you do with that data. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's, and there's been a lot of problems in many fields of science of replicating results, uh, because yep. of this and yep. publication bias. And, and, uh, 
I, I talked to a psychology uh, professor on the on this podcast about that very issue. Oh, who um, did you talk? To? Uh, Pete Etchells. He's a video game researcher. Um, he has a really great um, uh, chapter in a book he wrote about. Are, it's a, it's a similar question actually. It's are video games bad for us? You know, it's yes. like it's another one of those those scenarios where it's just like this is such a hard question to answer, and the only thing we can do is these like you know perspective studies or retrospective studies, and 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 people are just so hard to to, to control. You know, to set up these. It just so my my question for you about that is I mean you you came into this as somebody who who studied chemistry yeah. and chemistry is relatively straightforward in in a lot I mean there's other um you know there's other things that can go wrong I'm sure in chem chemistry experiments but it's yeah. so much more controllable yeah so was this like I mean was did you just feel like writing this that you just went down this rabbit hole of of epidemiology i mean it's i mean i think so i i, I did a science journalism grad program i feel like 90 percent of the time this is the kind of things that we were talking about yeah you know yeah, yeah. chemistry is much more well behaved than people are <laughs> <laughs> i mean you know in a lab you mix two chemical i mean even in your kitchen right like when have you ever um like followed a recipe to bake a cake using ingredients that like you know were fairly fresh and weren't like off or whatever and and not screwed it up and been disappointed at the result like you know never like you're never the cake's never not going to rise if your yeast isn't like alive and active right um so versus people you know i mean first of all getting them to remember accurately anything and then you know they might lie and then like you have variation with I me mean, we're not all clones right we all have different genomes and so maybe with the way we react to things is different. So uh, it, it is like studying people is, and I got to give credit to all these researchers who do this. It's really hard. Um, and not being, you know, I'm not an epidemiologist. I don't have an epidemiology background at all. So it was news to me. First of all, it was news to me that like we didn't already have the answer about processed food. Then it was news to me that like, people were debating this so so vehemently there there's an there's a, there's a fight going on in the literature right now over 12 hazelnuts like that's that's the level of like granularity and, and like frustration that people on on each side of the issue have with, with each other um uh so that was news to me and then like you know i i vaguely knew about p-values and Statist like statistics to figure out if two groups are different than each other. I like vaguely knew about that. But, you know, you talk to a statistician and then they'll blow your mind completely open again. Um, so, yeah, I feel like I went down not even just one, but multiple rabbit holes when, <laughs> when <laughs> writing this book. <laughs> yeah. And then it's, and it's not only just like studying, you know, trying to study people, but then it's like when you put out your findings, like it's, it's, how that how that information is received as well because everybody has all these opinions about food and about you know any 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 study that comes out about sex or sexuality it's the same thing it's just like you know you get this it's so polarizing you know into these camps so um, totally so yeah. anyways kudos kudos to you for for like diving into this and and trying to <laughs> unpack it for us a little bit yeah um, totally 
intentional. I was trying to figure it out for myself, and then I was like, <laughs> I have no idea what's going on. Let me let me work this out." You know. Um, one. So we we talked a bit about the content of the book, but one thing I really uh, a couple of things I just wanted to say about it. Um, one, I really enjoyed reading it. Um, uh, the other thing is it's super nerdy. Um, <laughs> and, and those are hard things to, to, to put together because you, you really get into like the detail on some of this stuff about how these things work and, and, um, but, but you, you did such a great job with like bringing in analogies and a lot of humor too. I mean, I think, I think you, um, you know, maybe, maybe missed your calling as a, as a comedy screenwriter in, in Hollywood. Cause there's just so much, there's so many great jokes in here. And let me see, let me see if I can, um, yeah. Okay. So, uh, we're talking about E. coli. Es Escherichia comes from Theodore Escherich, the German doctor who discovered it in 1886 and coli comes from the Latin colon, which means exactly the same as in English. So the name in this bacterium is effectively German doctor's poop tube bacterium. <laughs> who said scientific names were boring. <laughs> um, there's just tons of stuff like that. I just, I, I loved it. I, I loved reading it. And, and, and like I said, it's that combination of like really drilling down to, to understand something and coming at it with an open mind and like, and, 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 and unpacking that for people, but then also making it interesting and entertaining to read. And I think you just really like did that here and, and achieved that. So. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. My hope is that like, you know, I, I thought I was going to write a book where I did just tell you what the answer was and why the answer was the answer, but instead totally accidentally it turned into a book that I hope is useful as a tool. Like it helps you think about science and yeah. hard questions and how to answer them and like why it takes so long. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, if it, if it did that and if it was fun to read, then I'm, I'm happy. <laughs> awesome. Um, yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, it really is, it is, um, it's about epidemiology, but it's, a, it's about another, you know, long word that starts with E, which is epistemology. How do yeah. we know what we know is true? And, yeah. and you really like followed the, followed the trail of like, okay, I went this far and this didn't answer it. And now, now I'm going to dig deeper and I'm going to dig deeper and dig deeper. And then, you know, but, but I think with a lot of these things, it's, it's sort of, um, it, it's unsatisfying because you, you end up going, well, uh, I don't know what I have here. This is, you know, um, there's, there's not a decisive answer like right. with, with smoking where it's very clear. Don't smoke. Yeah. You know, should I buy organic food? I don't know. Maybe. Should I be eating more brown rice? Maybe, you know, yeah. like, uh, if, if any, and even if it's true, it's sort of negligible, you know, right. a fact, um, yeah. that that's, yeah. that's frustrating, but it's, it, yeah. but, but it's an interesting journey along the way, following, going along with you on that journey. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, Maybe a place to end is um, I talked about those CDC recommendations. You you have four recommendations in the book, um, and maybe you could just share what those are. You know, having having gone down this rabbit hole. Totally. Um, so the first and the most important one we've touched on is don't smoke. It is it is the number one thing that you can do to improve your personal health. So I mean, obviously, if you don't smoke, don't start. If you do smoke, try your, try your best to quit, right? That's the number one thing. The other one that's sort of in the same vein is um, like be physically active in some way. Um, 
it, you know, you don't have to do three P90X classes every single day, but like find some way to keep your body moving and, 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 and use, you know, use your muscles, do things, walk around. I mean, especially now that we're, if you're lucky, you're self-isolating at home and we're shut inside and, and, um, uh, but do take that walk around the block. Um, it is important. And it doesn't uh, matter so much what you do, right? I mean, it's just, it's just doing some activity, right? Yeah. I, I think like, you know, if you, again, we could, I'm sure if you dive into the research on this, there are people who will say like, yeah, it really matters or no, it doesn't matter. So, <laughs> um, my feeling is like, it's hard enough to motivate yourself to, to be, to do exercise in the first place that if you, it like, don't be too hard on yourself about what that exercise is. Just like get moving in some way, right? It, don't beat yourself up for not doing more. Like congratulate yourself for doing what you were able to do and be physically active. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. And the other two bits of advice are sort of, uh, um, well, one of them is how to process information and the other one is about food because the whole book is about food. The processing information one is basically like, Unless you're seeing a headline about contaminated lettuce or something from the CDC, like about COVID-19, you, like if I were you, I would pretty much ignore most news about health, especially if the headline reads something like, you know, X food linked to X percent increase in Y disease, right? Like stuff like that. You know, I bet if you do five minutes of Googling, you'll probably find the opposite headline a month ago. And you will end up losing trust in science. And it's not, you know, science pr- proceeds slowly and in, and stepwise, right? Like, it's not like one study is going to come out and it's going to answer all the questions and, like, lay the debate to rest. No, it's like each piece is built on, e- on top of the last piece and it takes years and years and years for us to get to, like, an actual answer. So don't torture yourself by, like, reading every single piece as it comes out. Wait for the official guidelines. Um, and speaking of which, this is now tied, we tie back into food. Like, you know, I think we have, there's sort of an obsession in the US at least with like optimizing things, right? Like what is the best possible thing that I can do on X? And especially with food, like, how can I be the most healthy imaginable when it comes to food? Um, and I think that that's what, one, that's really hard because we actually don't know the like pinnacle of, <laughs> of help. <laughs> and second of all, you're going to spend so much energy, in my opinion, like waste so much energy trying to reach that peak when really it's not like, it's not like it's this, it's probably more like this. Whereas if you're just a little bit off the peak and you, you know, you're not so bad and you're, you're going to spend hours and hours and hours yeah. like getting yourself to the peak, forget it. It's not worth it. Yeah. You know, just follow some, some doctor recommended diet, any doctor recommended diet. Yeah. Don't, don't be deficient in the essential nutrients and stuff that you need and you'll be fine. Yeah. And it, I mean, from an evolutionary perspective, our success as a species is being very adaptable. So right. there probably is not like an optimum diet. I mean, that's, I, I think that's probably the case that there's yeah. sort of general guidelines and, and, and you can really vary within that quite a bit. Uh, yeah, and sense. maybe the optimum diet is different for different people. Like, yeah. if you have a certain gene, the optimum diet for you is different than the optimum diet for Jenny Craig, right? Like, like <laughs> so you know, you 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 could spend your entire life doing that and never get the right answer. And I think you're right too about 
you know, the the thing with health news, it's almost reminds me of on that inter- on the internet where you see that, you know, that that headline that was going around a lot, that one weird trick to do something, you know, it's like you think there's not that one weird trick you're going to change your diet and it's going to you know, radically, you're going to radically lose weight or you're not, you know, it's, um, there's a whole diet industry based on that. Oh, if I just cut out this one thing, if I stop eating this one macronutrient, if I add this one thing to my diet, that that's going to make this big change. And it's just nonsense. Yeah. No magic bullets. Yeah. Yeah. So what was number, you said there were four. So what was, Oh, that was it. So, uh, it was, uh, Basically, ignore most health news unless it's coming from the CDC or the FDA or the oh. WHO or something like that. Um, don't smoke. Um, be physically active, and then like pick some you know doctor-approved diet, and generally follow that, and don't worry so much. All right, and then we can live long, healthy lives. Healthy and happy lives, right? Happy. That's, that's the battle, right? <laughs> don't drive yourself crazy with worry. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yes, we'll, we'll, we'll do our best. Anyways, uh, George, thanks so much for doing this, uh, for coming on. I uh, hope you stay healthy and safe. And uh, any, any final words for the podcast listeners? Um, oh, go ahead. Yeah. No, I, I didn't have any. I was going to. Okay. Yeah, I, didn't have um, I should ask. Um, and, and where can people find you online? Where, where would you prefer that people find you online to, to see more of what you're working on? And um, The best place is probably ingredientsthebook.com. Ingredientsthebook.com. Okay, got it. All right, man. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. This was fun. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we've come to the end of this show. Uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. Email us at feedback at sciencecentric.com. Also, don't forget, you can support future episodes by becoming a member on Patreon. Head over to sciencecentric.com support for more info. The Science Centric Podcast is a FlowSpark Media production. Our audio engineer for this episode was Alexander James. Guest booking was handled by Melissa David. Our intro-outro music comes courtesy of BitBasic. Thanks for listening, and until next time, I'm Eric Olson. Mm-hmm.